Thank you, Pastor Booth. Uh, while I respond to your request to tell you a bit about myself and my family, I wonder if I could ask uh, you guys to distribute these. So you need one each. If I pass these halfway around to the back, that's great. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'll take one. <laughs> Might be useful. Wonderful. Um, just while those are going around, uh, so you can tell from my accent that I'm not from this part of Texas. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was um, born in England, uh, and um, uh, I am married to Nicole, my wife. We've been married since 1999, which is really alarmingly long period of time. Last millennium, my children keep reminding me. Um, and prior to coming to All Saints, uh, Fort Worth, in 2020, I was pastor of Emmanuel church in London, England, where I'd been since 2009. Um, that was a church which, well, I was the founding pastor. It began in 2009, and we were blessed right from the outset. I'm going to move this just across here. Um, right from the outset with support and encouragement from many CREC churches, actually including All Saints in Fort Worth. And over the years, I got the opportunity to travel over here a little bit, and that's really how I got to know folks here and uh, uh, where the invitation came from, I guess, to, for me to uh, join you all. Um, uh, Emmanuel in London is now pastored by my successor, Steve Hayhow. We only really do Steve's um, in North London as pastors. And um, it's, going, it's going great. They're doing really well. Uh, there are a whole bunch of new people there, which is really wonderful. Um, but uh, yes, my, so my wife, Nicole, uh, we have uh, three children, Ben, Becky, and Abby. Ben is 18, about to head off to college. Uh, two girls, Becky and Abby. Um, yeah, and we have just been really blessed by the um, welcome that we've been received, uh, we've received, and um, the opportunities to serve Christ here in um, Texas. Um, in fact, um, I think I've had the opportunity to thank the young people at one or two other churches, but I've not thanked uh, the young people here. Uh, one or two of you, or maybe a few more of you than that, have been particularly welcoming to my children, uh, uh, inviting them over here for social events and hanging out with them and so on. And I'm really grateful to you for that. Thank you. It, uh, if, if your uh, younger children, girls as well as boys, are uh, among those who welcome my son and daughters, I'm very grateful to you because it was a big deal for them to move 5,000 miles across the ocean. Uh, they love it here. I love it here. And it's a real honor to be with you here tonight at um, Grace Covenant. So what you've got in front of you I almost never do this. In fact, I, I never do this. I, I never read my <laughs> talks. And I never print them out and give them to people. But I decided on this occasion, I, I feel like, by God's grace, um, th- this is, it feels to me at least, something of a manifesto for my own reflection and for some of the teaching that I want to lay before the men at All Saints in Fort Worth and to you this evening. Uh, This two-sided sheet headed Pursuing Maturity in Christ. Uh, My plan this evening is simply to read through it in the first session and comment on it as I go. Uh, Then in the next session this evening and in the two sessions tomorrow, I'm going to dig a bit more deeply into specific aspects of it. Um, As Pastor Booth mentioned, I've been teaching on this in other contexts this spring and summer, and I'm going to be continuing to do so 
uh, at one or two other venues later this year. And I don't want to just regurgitate for you stuff that you could listen to perfectly well on the All Saints podcast or wherever else. I want to uh, try and give different angles on different details of this material in different places. So I've got some fresh stuff for you guys tomorrow. But I do think it will be helpful if we begin with this summary of what it is that I want to say to you. And before we jump into it, because it's quite a long document, maybe it will be helpful if I summarize it. This is driven by a pastoral concern that has been brewing in my mind for 10 or 15 years. I've noticed that in myself, there are times when I grow, have grown, wonderfully in my faith. And there have been times of comparative stasis or even drifting from the Lord. I think particularly of my early university years. That was a time of drifting for a good number of months. As a pastor, I've had the tremendous excitement of seeing some people come to faith in Christ, perhaps, or uh, come to church as baby Christians and have their lives turned upside down. And the transformation that you see in them as they grow in faithfulness and Christ-likeness is simply astonishing. And they, they come laden down with sins and all kinds of burdens. But by God's grace, they seem to overcome many of those struggles very quickly and make tremendous progress. And within a year or two or three, you're thinking, goodness, if they hadn't been converted so recently, they should be a deacon. You know, these are great guys. And then I've had the, the painful experience of seeing dear friends of mine may have been Christians for a few years or may have been Christians for a few decades, making no progress at all in areas of basic Christian godliness. It might not even be basic Christian godliness. It might be basic disciplines of life. Being organized enough to hold down a job respecting your mother, loving your children and your wife, um, reading the Bible weekly, no mind daily, um, besetting sins like pornography and so on. It's really been troubling me for a long time that some people respond so quickly and so well to challenges that you set before them. And others don't respond at all. And sometimes it's because they don't want to enough. But other times, there seems to be no lack of commitment and passion. It's just they are close to despair because they're not seeing any change in themselves. And I've not been able to ignore this. And I've been troubled by it. I've been trying to work out why. And it seems to me that what I have lacked and what I feel I might be beginning to gesture towards is what you might call a systematic theology, for want of a better phrase, of pastoral growth or personal growth. A, an overall framework which, if we could understand it and internalize it and live it out, it would equip us 
to make much better progress in all those areas of life and godliness and, and faithfulness and maturity where too much of the time, isn't it the case that we just feel like we're standing still or treading water or going backwards? You ever had that feeling? You, you will have had the experience of growing in your love for Christ and growing in your faithfulness at various points. But I bet there'll be more than a few of us here who maybe now, certainly in the past, look back over years of what feels like wasted time. And it wasn't for want of trying. What was it that you were missing? This is my attempt to summarize how we should approach the task of growing towards maturity in Christ, whatever the issue is. I'll give you an illustration, and then we'll jump into this. Imagine that we, we just dropped all of you, m- me and Pastor Booth included, in um, Lowe's or Home Depot or your favorite hardware store and said, okay, guys, you've each got to build a house. No instructions available. And what would happen is that we'd all go, okay, well, I think I know... Um, I, I saw a house once, <laughs> or I saw somebody build one once. They definitely poured a foundation. And okay, so you might go and find some concrete. You know, we'd all go and we'd all um, go about the task of building a house, and we would all do it in different ways, kind of haphazardly. And some of those houses would stand up pretty well. But all of them would have some flaws in them. It might be that you get the structure just right, but you. There's one tiny thing that you got wrong about the plumbing. When you were joining the pipes together with those funky twist-fit connectors, you know? But you didn't remember to use the little inserts, the little metal inserts in the plastic pipe. <laughs> so when you push them in, they stay there, and you think, that's great. And then you, you put all the drywall up, and you turn the water on, and all the connectors go, thump, and they all come off. And you know, One little thing, one little tiny thing that you didn't do, and the house is ruined. What did you need? Well, what you really needed was a basic guidebook to the task of building a house. You would never try to build a house without a basic framework for how to go about the task, would you? And yet, we seem to strive to grow in Christian godliness much of the time without that overarching framework. Now, I know in one sense the Bible is that overarching framework. But the Bible comes to us in a complex and uh, textured form. It's not like chapter one, step one of growing in Christian godliness. It's not like that, is it? So really what we're trying to do is to say, okay, what does the Bible give us by way of an overarching framework for approaching this task of Christian godliness and growing in Christ-likeness? So we don't end up in this perpetual treadmill of just trying harder, trying harder, getting frustrated, banging our head against a brick wall the whole time and wondering why there's water coming in through the ceiling the whole time. So with that, let me invite you to turn with me to this, I'm sorry, rather long, detailed, um, two-page, goodness gracious, he's out of his mind, (laughs) handout headed Pursuing Maturity in Christ. And I'm going to read through it and comment on it as we go. Pastor Booth, how long would you like this session to last in total? Right, okay. So I'll I'll try and do this in about 40 minutes or a bit less, and then we'll see where we get to, and then we'll have another session this evening, 
where we'll go a little bit more detail into some of it, and then we'll come back tomorrow and, and see what else we have to discover. So then, paragraph one. The Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. As pastors, I think I can confidently speak for Pastor Booth here, as well as myself and Pastor Neil in Fort Worth and other pastors, it is our goal and privilege to help you in this pursuit. Indeed, all of us have a responsibility to help one another as we strive towards this objective. Now, um, just some biblical texts in the right-hand margin right there. You know what these texts say. Um, Ephesians 4.13, Colossians 1.28, Colossians 4.12, Ephesians 6.1. All of them in different ways highlight um, maturity or growing up or leaving behind childishness as the goal of the Christian life. We are not in the business of simply making converts. Correct? Jesus did not say, um, go and convert the nations. He instructed his disciples to disciple them. We are not in the business, as I've said on other occasions, of um, snatching people off the burning deck of a sinking ship. Phew, thank goodness they're safe. I mean, if that was the case, then we could all just go to heaven straight away. Or we'd stop this right now, uh, pray for a minute, and then we'd go out into the streets and just do some evangelism, which would be fine. It would be a good thing to do. We probably should do that a little bit. But we consider that we have an additional task. Having come to faith in Christ, we have begun a journey ourselves. And the journey must continue. And particularly as men and uh, husbands and fathers, many of us now and uh, perhaps almost all of us or all of us in the future, We have a responsibility to do this because we are responsible for our families, for our wives. We are actually responsible to help one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, Scripture does not paint a picture of the Christian life where basically you get saved and then we're done. You get saved and now you're just started. And it seems to me a helpful biblical way of characterizing the goal towards which we're striving is maturity. One final comment. We distinguish maturity from moral perfection. Um, Jesus possesses both maturity and moral perfection. We'll come to Jesus in just a uh, paragraph or two. But we recognize there is such a thing as as a man who is a mature Christian. Such a man is a candidate to be an elder in your church. Um, He's rather like, um, if you imagine, a carpenter, right? There's a, there's a guy who doesn't know how to do carpentry, and then there's a guy who does know how to do carpentry, right? Who's trained, who's done it for 20 years, who can now instruct others, who you trust to build a table or to build your house or whatever, or to build the stairs that you walk up if you have a two-story house. Um, he's not perfect, but he's mature, okay? He's got to the stage where you think you're a carpenter now. That's what we're thinking about in Christian terms. A man that you could look at and say, yeah, you know what? I want to be like him. The kind of man that you will be when other men start aspiring to be like you, or at least where it's wise for them to start doing so. That's what we mean by maturity. Sinless perfection would be nice. It's unattainable. But there is a goal that is attainable. And this is what we're talking about. It's at least possible to keep moving closer towards it. So how do, what do we mean by this maturity in more detail? Next paragraph. This maturity is best understood as a broad, all-embracing category of Christ-likeness, including a number of different areas. And let me just go through a few different facets of this. 
overcoming specific sins, addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts, developing an increasing capacity to handle the demands and complexities of adult life, dealing with various matters on the borders of often categorized as mental health issues, such as anxiety or depression, and in general, taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every aspect of life. If you've had a man who described like that, a man who, those five sub-clauses, you think, yeah, that's him. Such a man would be a mature man, yes? Not overcome by any specific sins, cheerful, joyful, faithful, um, not beset with anxiety, and so on and so forth. Um, Let me just uh, make a couple of comments about one or two of these. Um, One way of articulating uh, these in biblical terms is that they are the prerequisite to the cultural mandate in Genesis 1. Adam and Eve are told to fill and subdue the earth. That's a task that requires commitment, requires faithfulness if it is to be done in obedience to the living God. It requires not being weighed down with sins and ungodliness. It requires a kind of joyfulness, an exuberant commitment to whatever the task is that we've been given. Actually, it requires well-functioning marriages. Um, Theologians have uh, routinely distinguished two elements of the uh, cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The the work element, um, the vocation to labor in the world, and marriage and procreation. And so one aspect of um, what it means to be a faithful Adam, Adam just means man, to be a faithful man is to be a good husband and a good father. And so just, just think, if you had all these things, if you were basically faithful, basically productive, not beset by a whole range of different sins, you could handle the demands and complexities of life. You, can, you know how to figure out what to do when a question is asked to which the answer is, yeah, it depends. Yes and no. Most interesting and difficult questions are like that. And most of the questions you'll face in the practicalities of adult life are like that. And a mature man knows what to do. Or at least knows where to start thinking about it. These characteristics are the prerequisite of fulfilling that glorious task given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. They are also actually part of the goal of fulfilling that task. Hands up if you've read Mark Horne's book, um, uh, Solomon Says. You read that? Yeah. Uh, not enough of you have read Solomon Says. And you're laughing because your son's next to you. You read it together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very, very good book. Now, um, one of the, the things that um, Mark highlights, I think it's on page five, he points out that uh, before I'm going to, I'm, this is not a quote, it's a paraphrase. Before you can start ruling any other part of the creation, you have to rule yourself. You have to be in control of your own life. If you're not in control of your own life, then what's going to happen is other people will control you, and the way they'll do so is by manipulating your out-of-control desires. Self-rule, in other words, is one of the things that Adam needs to do. If he's going to go and subdue that uncultivated 
area of land over there, 10,000 acres that all needs to be kind of, well, the trees need to be chopped down to make, made into like a house for his wife. And some of the rocks need to be dug out of the ground to be made into beautiful jewelry for his wife. And then the ground needs to be leveled and plowed and cropped sown so he can eat and feed his family. If he's going to do that, he's going to have to subdue his desire just to kick back and watch TV. Because that's what you really want to do, isn't it? Like, oh, man, is it that early in the morning again? Oh, I know. Snooze. Well, I don't know if you have to snooze anymore because you're all woken up by your mobile phone. Back in the day, we had alarm clocks with the snooze button, right? Um, subduing our own desires is the prerequisite to being able to subdue the world, and it's the first thing we've got to do. Of course, our desires can lead us in all kinds of unseemly directions. Now, where is this maturity found? Next paragraph. Scripture teaches that this maturity is found in Christ. This one needs thinking about quite carefully. It is his in the first instance because he possesses and exhibits it perfectly as the perfect man, the last Adam. It is ours by his grace because he has bestowed it upon us as a gift by the Spirit. We are called to make it increasingly ours by striving to live faithful, sorry, repentant and faithful lives animated by the Spirit. And we are assured that we may expect to make meaningful, significant progress towards increasing maturity if we do so. This is crucial because what we want to avoid is this sense that um, the, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. That there is this goal towards which we are striving, which leaves a man ruined, literally ruined. I mean, he nearly died in pursuit of this goal of productivity and fruitfulness in and out of his own strength. I, mean, I don't know whether you pray for that man and whether you even know who he is, but. Um, Maybe he's coming closer to Christ, I don't know. But um, we can have a kind of Christian version of that that devolves into a sort of silly self-help mentality where what we're really trying to do is to tweak bits of our lives to make them work a bit better. The first thing we need to recognize is that we have all that Christ is and has by the Spirit. So Jesus is the perfect mature man. He's the last Adam, not the second Adam. I know there's a hymn that calls him the second Adam. Cain was the second Adam, Abel was the third, and Noah was somewhere down the line. And Jesus is the last Adam in the sense of the, the teleological Adam, the, the Adam towards which history is progressing, the final, complete man. He has in himself every virtue perfected. And you see, you see things like um, when he calmed the, the water with a word, the, the, the stormy waters of Lake Galilee, and um, commentators quite often see that as a manifestation of his divinity because only God can still the waves and so on. You read back in the Psalms, which is true. But is it not also a manifestation of his perfected manhood? Here is a man who, with a word, can control the creation, subdue the creation. Yeah? The perfected man. Now, you're one with Christ by the Spirit. Calvin's entire theological project is centered on this uh, idea of which he's got from the Apostle Paul. It's not Calvin made this up. That um, in Christ is found every blessing from God the Father. And it remains for us, Calvin says, to seek it in him. And as members of his body, we have it in him. The Spirit's role is to unite us with Christ so we share in everything that he is and has. And Scripture routinely talks in this way. Um, we have 
the adoption as sons. Well, why? Well, because we're one with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have justification. Well, how do we have that? Well, because we're one with Jesus, the righteous, the justified one. We're holy, we're sanctified, because we're one with the sanctified, the holy Lord Jesus Christ. We have maturity. We have Jesus' disposition towards the world by his grace, as a gift, by the Spirit. And therefore, we are called in Scripture to make that increasingly evident in our lives. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. And this is just one example of this. Um, Colossians 3 verse 1. um, And you know this text very well, I'm sure. uh, If then, uh, and the logic of the letter, the if really means since. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Well, just think about that for a second. You've been raised with Christ. Where are you? Well, you're here physically, but by the grace of God, you are raised, resurrected with Jesus, animated by the same spirit by which God the Father raised him from the dead. So what should you do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. So you put off all this ungodliness, put to death whatever is earthly in you, and ungodly, verse 5 and following, put on, verse 12 and following, all these virtues which are Christ like virtues. Can you see? So, again and again, you get the same thing in Romans 6. Um, you, we have this status granted to us of being one with Christ and sharing everything that he is and has, and then we're called to pursue it. And we are sh- assured that we may expect to make meaningful progress if we do so. You see this in the examples of uh, Paul and Nicodemus and Zacchaeus. You probably see it in your own personal testimony. Uh, you see it in the lives of the Corinthians. Remember that horrific list of um, sins that Paul the Apostle recounts in them in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 5 verses 9 to 11. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have been transformed. So we're not to approach this task of Christian growth as a matter of mere striving for something that is not ours. This is yours. You are not that dissipated uh, wastrel who does things in private of which you're ashamed. That's not you. You are Christ's. And all that we say in relation to striving for maturity in Christ is growing into the clothes with which he has clothed us by baptism into him. Here's the robe. Now grow up into it. That's the disposition we are to have. Now, next paragraph. As pastor, I'm going to need to speed up, aren't I? Sorry about that. Um, as pastors, we address various aspects of this maturity very frequently in different contexts. In sermons, Bible studies, podcasts, personal conversations, and in prayer with and for God's people. By God's grace, we sometimes see believers making significant progress, but not always. This gets to the pastoral heart of the concern that 
animates what I'm talking about this evening. Indeed, sometimes people seem to make no progress at all or even regress substantially over time. And no amount of prayer, teaching, encouragement, or exhortation seems to make much difference. Even direct one-to-one pastoral counseling sometimes has no effect, despite the fact that this approach allows issues to be addressed clearly, specifically, and forcefully, and often despite the apparent commitment of the counselee. This was what first set me on the road to realizing that I needed to think about this. It was like 2009 or something, before some of you were born, probably. Um, And I realized I'm talking to somebody who seems thoroughly committed to growing in her faith. And I'm addressing specifically some issues which she's told me she wants to deal with. And no change. And Am I the only pastor who experiences this, Pastor Blue? Didn't think so. Yeah, very funny. This lack of progress provokes a range of responses from resignation and despair on the one hand to a never-ending treadmill of trying harder on the other, none of which generally improve the situation. And I'm talking about all of the sins and issues in the um, right-hand margin there and more besides. Besetting sins, family strife, marital strife, persistent relational immaturity, mental health problems, destructive habits of eating, exercise, smartphone use, and so on. I'm going to talk about some of those technological factors tomorrow, I think, because it seems to me that we are, we've recognized that there's a problem coming from technology, but we think it's all about the smartphone. Wrong. Okay? It goes much deeper than that, and we need a, a, almost like a, a Christian theology of technology to help us to understand how to live in a world that's filled with it because we're just getting overwhelmed. But this is not a recent problem. It's a problem that's been exacerbated recently. I'm going to come to that tomorrow. Um, Lack of basic Christian disciplines, vocational incapacity. And what tends to happen is people just, they vacillate between feeling like giving up, feeling guilty for having given up, trying harder, getting nowhere, and then feeling like giving up again, around and around in this circle. And it's like, what's supposed to be done? These observations, next paragraph, provoke a cluster sorry, prompts a cluster of significant pastoral and theological questions. Basically, why? What accounts for these dramatic variations in the degree of growth towards maturity among believers? To be sure, it's likely that some people are more prayerful than others, or more deeply soaked in Scripture, or more committed to Christ, or more self-disciplined, or blessed with wiser counselors. I mean, you might be right, Pastor Booth. Your, Your joke might not be so funny. It might be that some pastors are just not very good at pastoring. That might be why some pastors um, aren't able to help people so much. Um, In that sense, and I say this quite openly, this is, among other things, me trying to figure out how to be a better pastor. Perhaps the Spirit, same paragraph, in his sovereign wisdom chooses to distribute his sanctifying grace unevenly. So all those things are probably true. Now, if you never pray, well, that might account for quite a lot of why you're not growing in your faith then. Uh, like, come on, guys. Um, never read the word and never come to church. Well, I, I, I tell you, there is, there is no amount of cleverness in pastoral counseling and care which will ever make up for the fact that you don't worship God. I mean, 
obviously. So there are some basic things that need to be in place. And perhaps God, just in his mysterious grace, does things differently with different people. But it does prompt the question, is there anything else? Are there any insights that we're missing, which if we grasp them would help us to help ourselves and each other? What can be done to help those who struggle? It is clearly inappropriate, next paragraph, simply to accept these differences without seeking to understand what might be done about them. Here we need to introduce the relationship between God's sovereign grace in transforming us and our response of uh, striving to grow in faithfulness. Let me address that briefly in this paragraph. Of course the Lord remains sovereign over every aspect of our lives, but this never justifies passivity on our part. That's the mistake of um, mid-20th century Keswick movement. Just relax into the love of Jesus. Let go and let God and, you know, uh, you're struggling in your faith. You're not relaxing into the love of Jesus enough. You know, really, really relax into the love of Jesus. And you end up kind of horizontally relaxed into the love of Jesus. And somehow, you're, you know, you're still not sanctified perfectly. Uh, no, because what scripture teaches is, same paragraph, we are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, even while we recognize that it is God who is at work in us. We're commanded to put sin to death, Romans 6, even while we recognize that the old man was crucified with Christ. Romans 6 is fascinating. Like, you've died. Sin has been crucified in you. Oh, great. I can relax. No. Put to death, therefore. Crucify sin. Mortify the flesh. To fan into flame our gifts, even while we recognize that all our abilities come from God, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. Fan into flame the gift of God that's in you through the laying on of my hands, Paul says to Timothy. And to pursue holiness even while we recognize that it is God who sanctifies, Leviticus, Hebrews, 1 Peter. In other words, there's no conflict. I don't need to tell you this, right? There's no conflict in Scripture between the biblical claim that God is at work in you graciously and um, monogistically and the claim that the way he works is to prompt in you that kind of activity which he requires from us, by which we will grow in faithfulness. The crucial question, here we come to the, uh, almost the end of this first slide, the crucial question might be posed in this way. Is it possible to articulate a systematic, biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth towards maturity in Christ in every area of our lives? What are we missing? Are we all trying to build houses like the guys dropped in Lowe's hardware store uh, with a checkbook but no instructions? Haphazardly scurrying around from day to day and week to week trying to build a house or trying to sort our lives out with no idea what we're doing or some idea what we're doing in some areas because I watched my dad do some plumbing once, but no overall big picture that would guide us. No plans, no architectural drawings of what we're trying to create in our lives. Is it possible to articulate such a plan, a systematic, biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth towards maturity in Christ in every area of our lives? Besides what we all know we should be doing already, trusting Jesus, regular corporate worship and fellowship, daily prayer and scripture reading, seeking advice, striving for godliness. Does scripture suggest 
a big picture that directs us towards specific concrete steps that might produce the fruit of the Spirit in greater measure. It turns out that it does. There is in the Bible a very simple paradigm for growth. Next paragraph. The normative, God-given process by which a person grows from immaturity to maturity has a simple and deeply humiliating name. Childhood. Think for a moment. Parents are called to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in the confident expectation that the Lord will be at work in and through that process to bring them from Christian infancy to Christian adulthood. Now, think for a second. This is right at the heart of what I think may be helpful. to. This is the architectural plan in a nutshell. What's supposed to happen? Imagine the perfect father. Well, it's quite easy to imagine the perfect father, isn't it? Um, you've got a nearly, no, not nearly perfect. Most of you have got a pretty good, three-quarters decent father, right? Well, imagine if your dad was great, just perfect. What would happen? Well, you'd be born, and as you grew up and as you learn to walk and learn to talk and learn to read and write and help around the kitchen and work in the yard and study history and learn calculus and do chin-ups and then do one-arm chin-ups and drive a car and worship and respect your mother and honor your sisters and love your wife. You'd get to 16, 17, 18, 19. You'd get to a certain point and all the rest of the dads And all the rest of the young men would be looking at you thinking, 18-year-old man. Can you see what's supposed to happen is childhood is the process by which we're supposed to grow to manhood. And what we're all experiencing all of us, to different degrees, in different areas of our lives, is a failure of our own childhood. Now, this is not to blame your parents, although, of course it's true that your parents, and some of them are here, would willingly put their hands up and say, yes, I can tell you some areas in which I failed. I could do this. I could definitely do that. A a, a wise parent would always be straight up ready to acknowledge they've let their kids down. But it's also a failure on your part, our part, all of us, as children. We went from infancy to 16, 17, 18, 19, and we got to that point, and we weren't like the man standing over there about whom everyone said, Everyone could see there are some bits missing in the the overall jigsaw puzzle of our maturity, right? We're still childlike in some areas of our lives, in dealing with particular sins, in dealing with particular challenges, in dealing with faithfulness in respect to different aspects of what the world demands of us. Childhood was supposed to provide the framework by which we came to maturity, and it has got us part of the way there, 
We're like a man who's six foot four, but has got size three feet. You know? Like, are you grown up? Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> but there, there's a bit of me that's not quite made it yet. So are you grown up? Yeah. Uh, six foot two, 180 pounds, about to go to college, uh, really sharp in maths and pretty decent at history and all the humanities and so on, but um, addicted to pornography and basically lazy. And the reason you did so well academically is because you're basically really, really bright and you didn't have to break your neck at school because, well, you know, you just had good teachers. Now, mature in some ways, but cripplingly inadequate and childlike in others. Can you see? Now, what's happened? Well, the, the childhood process didn't produce the fully formed man. Let's just dig into that a little bit more, more detail in the next few paragraphs. Consider how parenthood is supposed to work. Now, you, <laughs> Pastor Booth is your pastor. You've heard talks about parenthood before. What I'm intending to do in the next two or three paragraphs, then we'll have a break, and we, we won't get through all this in the first session. We'll come back in the next session. Um, I'm going to try and put the, um, the things you already know about parenthood and family life in a slightly different framework which will call attention to the salient aspects of them that will be helpful for us going forward. So much of this is like, yeah, I've seen this before, but there's a different perspective that I want to show you. Consider how parenthood is supposed to work. Parents love their children, bring them into a worshipping community and provide the basic essentials of life, food, shelter, and clothing. They show them how to relate to others, they teach them about God and his world and discipline and correct them when their behavior strays from the path of righteousness. Let's go straight on to the next paragraph. But parents also do more than this. Parents provide a vision for their children's growth and a structure within which that growth can take place. They have a clear understanding of what their children's capacities are and they have a clear vision of how those capacities ought to develop in the future. Put more simply... They know where their children are, and they know where they ought to be going. This is what parenthood ought to be like. Okay? This is the aspiration of every dad. Crucially, the children's movement along this journey is facilitated by the imposition of structures or patterns of behavior designed to inculcate habits that shape their children's character. Over time, this character takes root and the externally imposed structures can be relaxed as the children learn to govern their own behavior. Remember Genesis 1, Mark Horn, Solomon says, self-government, self-rule. And you know, self-government, we can talk about that another time. Um, the founding fathers of the American Republic spoke about the need for self-government. If you don't have self-government, you're going to have to be governed by other people. But if you govern yourselves, then we can have limited federal government, because you'll be able to control your own behavior. Right? That's how it's supposed to work. Huh, right. Over time, this character takes root. The externally imposed structures can be relaxed as children learn to govern their own behavior. It is this capacity for Christ-like self-government that lies at the heart of maturity in Christ. Let me make a couple of comments about those three paragraphs. First up, there's an element of provision. Right? All, all of you men who are, who are dads, what would happen if at the age of two weeks you decided to stop providing food, shelter, clothing, nourishment to your children? They'd die immediately. Correct? 
I mean, that's pretty much what children do. That's how the Romans treated kids they didn't want. We have a far more sophisticated way of dealing with children we don't want in modern America and modern Europe. Um, so it's less visible. Anyway, no, no less barbaric. Um, now, what, what are you doing? Well, you're providing what they need to keep them alive. But you get to a certain point, three, four, five, six years old, when the child doesn't need you to provide food for them. They could forage. Uh, they could just go eat berries and grass out of the field. In 1842, a law was passed in England um, prohibiting children under the age of 10 from working in coal mines underground. Yes, that's right. Before that time, children under the age of 10 worked in coal mines. They were called hurriers. And the way that coal mines worked is they'd have these little tunnels about 16 inches high between the main shaft and the coal face. And the coal needs to be dragged along those tunnels in little carts. And so little kids, like five, six years old, would be sent down the tunnels with a belt around their waist. And they, they'd drag the um, cart behind them by a chain and they'd get the coal up to the surface that way. Now, um, why don't we do that for our children anymore? Here's the reason. We want to give them space to grow. You are protected from the consequences of your own lack of economic productivity. You're not required to earn a living. Your dad could send you down the coal mine. Probably be a bit unkind. But he doesn't do that. The reason he doesn't do it is because he wants you to have time to learn, to grow, to develop intellectually, to develop morally, for your character to be shaped. Um, and you don't earn a, a cent, or maybe you do, but not many cents, certainly not, not enough to keep you alive. And, and your mum and dad look after you, and they give you all that you need. It's rather like if you're growing tomatoes, sorry, tomatoes. Translation. Um, you can't just have tomatoes, I can't say tomatoes, to, tomatoes just growing. You have to provide like a, a stake for them to grow up, don't you? And if you have I mean, these genetically modified tomatoes we have nowadays, you need to leave the stake there because they're so... The, their genes are so much modified, they don't have any strength at all to keep the, the stem uh, to support their own weight. They have so many tomatoes on them, they're like green, they fall over. But in the old days, when they weren't so um, over-engineered, you could have a tomato plant, you could remove the stake when it became mature, get, get rid of the stick that it was growing up. Now, that's what's supposed to happen. You, you're provided with this support, this framework to grow up around, so that by the time you become mature it can be removed because you're strong enough in every way to support yourself. And childhood is the provision of all those necessities during the growing up phase to allow you to develop because your parents love you. Now, what are those structures? Well, one helpful way of analyzing them is like this. Uh, structures which create habits which inculcate character. Think about how that works. Um, what do your parents get you to do regularly? Maybe they get you to um, tidy your room is a fairly basic thing. I hope your mother gets on your case, or your father gets on your case, if your room is, you know, all the contents of the wardrobe are spread evenly across the floor. Yeah? If you're... Now, why do they do that? Um, well, the reason is they want to give you that rule, tidy your room, that's the structure, to create the habit so every day you tidy your room. And what's that going to do? Over the long term, the structure which creates the habit will shape your character. 
you become the sort of person who just lives in a tidy space. Or think of work, routines. Some of you will go to school. Hands up if you go to the school that's just some of you young people. Yeah, okay. When does it start in the morning? Eight, right. Every morning? Right. It's not like, well, come in when you like. You know, it's one of those progressive schools where you show up, whatever you feel like it. Do you want to go to school today? No. So they make you come in the same time every day. Why do you think they do that? Well, partly it's for efficiency's sake and practical reasons. They can't run a school when they don't know where anybody is. But it has a tremendous side effect because that structure, come in at eight every day, creates habits of when you get up in the morning and therefore when you need to go to bed in the morning and all the other things that you do during when you go to bed in the evening, sorry. And then all the other things that you do during the day creates patterns of behavior and the patterns of behavior shape your character. Yes? Now this happens across the spectrum of all the things that your parents do for you. All of the rules that a wise parent puts in place. There might not be rules. There might just be habits that are inculcated. Um, Maybe you open the car door for your mum before she gets out or before she gets in. Little things like that. Inculcates a habit of respectfulness, which inculcates a character of honouring women. Can you see? That's how childhood works. Childhood is supposed to be a, a phase of your life where there are all these structures in every aspect of your lives which create habits, imposed habits, in every area of your life, which become second nature, so that by the time you are 16, 17, 18, 19, they have become your character, and the rules can be taken away, and you'll still be a self-disciplined man. You will govern yourself. And what's happened with immaturity? Well, what's happened is, somewhere along the line, either the structures weren't put in place, or you didn't follow them, All the structures were bad somewhere. And the habits created were bad habits. So that the character that's resulted is, to some degree, unchristlike, immature. Nobody censored your mobile phone usage. And so you've become a slave to this device. And that aspect of your character is not Christ-like. You are not ruling that corner of the creation. You're ruled by it, by whatever trash gets put on your Facebook feed or whatever is Facebook, sorry, showing my age, Instagram, whatever it is. That's probably out of date now, isn't it? Can you see? What's supposed to happen is structure, good structure. Habits, good habits. Character, Christ-like character, and that is maturity in Christ. And what happens is some failure in that process. So what do we need to do? We'll pause in one second after I've summarized where the rest of this is going. As adults, if we can reinstate those aspects of structure and habits that somehow didn't do their work in us, perhaps we have an opportunity to reforge the missing bits of our character. And maybe this is the systematic, structured approach to growth in maturity that many of us, maybe all of us, have been missing. I'm going to talk a bit more about that in our second session this evening. But let me pause now. Um, it's 25 past, 22 minutes past seven.
going to take a break, Pastor Ruth, for a few minutes.